Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Now we've come to a very exciting segment of the program where we will have our international keynote speak. He's Daniel Aiden. He's a advisor and solution architect at the Bank for International Settlement. And this session will be kind of uh, looking into the future, looking at innovation uh, of an aspect of the banking and financial system that is core, which is money and payments. And uh, at the Bank of International Settlement, uh, especially the innovation uh, hub where Daniel works at, they are looking at replacing the current cash. As we all know, uh, there are many limitations and inefficiency to using cash. Uh, for one, cash can be lost, and there is enormous cost in managing physical cash. And there's a more efficient system uh, that central banks are looking at. And the central banks play an important role in ensuring that the cash or another form of payments that we use in the future is trusted. And no one can engender that trust better than the central banks. So um, Daniel is joining us from Basel uh, in Switzerland, where he is based. So we're getting him hooked up by Zoom. And uh, there he is, uh, Daniel. So he'll be speaking about uh, fostering inclusive, inclusive innovation in central banking perspective on blockchain, CBDCs, and payments. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we're here today to talk about central bank-driven uh, innovation. My name is Daniel Eden. I'm an advisor and a solution architect with the Bank for International Settlement at the Innovation Hub. Uh, I've been with the bank for just about two years now. Before that, I was uh, primarily in the technology space um, where I worked on distributed computing and distributed ledger technologies with a lot of central banks. And I've been involved in different central bank digital currency projects from the early days of 2018 uh, with the Bank of Canada. Um, my work with the BIS started at the Innovation Hub in Hong Kong, where I led Project Embridge for the last two years. And now I've transitioned to Basel and I'm gonna be leading work out of our head office here. The Bank for International Settlements is an international organization based out of Basel, Switzerland, where I'm, where I'm dialing in from today. The bank is owned by 63 central banks from around the world, including the US Federal Reserve and including the Central Bank of Vietnam. Uh, for more than nine decades, the BIS has been the principal forum for collaboration among central banks globally. We collaborate on many activities that contribute to monetary and financial stability, which is essential for economic growth. Zooming in on the Bank for International Settlements to the Innovation Hub itself, where I work out of, the BIS Innovation Hub develops public goods in the technology space to support central banks and improve the functioning of the financial system. When we talk about central banks represented on the left-hand side, and we talk about adding that to that a format of innovation, which started as early as, uh, as, as two or three years ago, um, often people will be confused and say, well, central banks and innovation are two things that don't go together. And I like to think about this as a bumblebee. And for those of you that don't know, 
when you look at a, at a bumblebee, a bumblebee is not supposed to be able to fly. Everything about a bumblebee indicates that it should not be able to fly, yet it does. So I think about central banking innovation a little bit like a bumblebee. We, it doesn't really make sense, um, but somehow we exist and, and, and we're flying. And I think that we have a track record of results in the two years that we've been around that can hopefully be a testament to the fact that we are flying and successful and bringing inclusive innovation into the central banking world. What do we do? There's three pillars to the BIS's innovation hub mandate. The first one is a horizon scanning of technology components. Uh, that means looking as far into the future as we can and pulling in the most um, relevant and significant innovation in the central banking space, it, sorry, in the technology space into the central banking world. Once we do that, the second pillar is to, is to produce POCs, that's a, a, a short acronym for proofs of concept, and prototypes using these technology tools. So you can think about that as we bring in the technology tools and then we apply them to central banking uh, and financial use cases. And then last but not least, if we do the first two things correctly, we become a focal point for central banking innovation. So everything that we do, every project that we work on is looked at through this lens. Are we increasing the output of central banks by enabling financial and monetary stability? We have six broad themes. Um, anything we do will fall into these broad themes and a lot of the projects that we have fall into many of these themes at the same time. Reading from left to right, supervisory technology and regulatory technology next generation financial market infrastructures, central bank digital currency that I'll talk a little bit more about today, open finance, cybersecurity, and green finance are all topics that are very much strategic to the innovation hub. Let's talk about central bank digital currency. So a CBDC is a, is a digital payment instrument that is denominated in the national unit of account that is a direct liability of the central bank. Anything that doesn't have those attributes should not be considered a CBDC. Next point is that CBDC is a digital form of central bank money that is different from balances in traditional reserves or traditional settlement accounts. Now let's move on from here and remind ourselves very quickly what today's version of M0 money is. And M0 is of course the, the, the notion of money that is issued by the central bank. M0 money today is, is in the format of cash in your pocket or reserves at the central bank. Those are the only two form factors of M0 money today. Now, um, it, it, it was stated very briefly in, in the introduction, but I would like to propose you know, the, the maybe radical notion that cash is likely not the answer for the future. So what is the future or the potential options for the future when we think about M0 money? Well, there's, there's, three, there's three kind of predictable options. One is that M0 in the future just doesn't exist. Um, and, and, and that's an option. The next one is that M0 of the future is reserves only because cash in more and more economies is increasingly disappearing. And the third option is that the M0 of the future 
is a combination of retail and wholesale CBDCs. Now, I would like to make the argument that there's three scenarios that can lead to the third outcome of retail and wholesale CBDCs being the M0 representation of money in the future, the direct liability of the central bank. The first one is that um, tokenized deposits will become more and more prevalent in the world that, that we're living in. So today, we, we, we look at a lot of stable coins and the proliferation of stable coins. More and more large-scale commercial banks are looking at a, a process of tokenizing their deposits. And to do so, they would likely need an interoperable base layer of M0 money to tokenize their deposits on. Another possibility is tokenized securities. Um, so, so I guess tokenized deposits would largely land in the retail space. To, to motivate the wholesale space, the more we will tokenize financial assets in the form of securities, the more a settlement mechanism for those securities will be needed, and that can spark um, a, a desirability for adoption of wholesale CBDCs. And last but not least, and this is what we'll talk about when we talk about the, the, the projects uh, of the Innovation Hub, is, is the need of imp the, the improvements that are desperately needed for cross-border payments. Uh, and a lot of the applications that we work on in the international context for, for central bank digital currencies, or in other words, M0 of the future, um, is, is through work on improving international payments. Let me quickly jump in and give some practical examples of the projects that we're running. So the vision of Project Enbridge is to build a minimum viable product, um, MVP, and eventually a production-ready multi-CBDC platform for cross-border payments. There's four key deliverables. It should improve solutions for key pain points in international payments. It should advance cross-border settlement in central bank money. It should support the use of local currencies and in international transaction and create opportunities for innovative and inclusive payment products and services. This is all done, of course, while safeguarding financial stability, integrity, and so on. Um, the Enbridge platform directly connects CBDCs of multiple jurisdictions using custom-built DLT, the Enbridge ledger, to support real-time peer-to-peer cross-border payments. This custom-built DLT platform, again, um, supports our mandate of Internet intellectual property built for central banks by central banks. This is probably the simplest diagram to show the technical platform. There are three critical components of this platform. The first one is the main circle that we can see. So the main circle is the, the platform. Anything outside the platform can't really transact directly on the platform, but needs to have a sponsor on the platform. So in this example, you can see that corporates are outside of the platform, but can get access to the platform through financial services provided by their banks and central banks. So the platform itself provides a common platform for settlement. So anything that settles on the platform is a common infrastructure that is equally accessible to all the platform participants. On top of that layer, we have these four quadrants, and every quadrant corresponds to a jurisdiction. Of course, when we have more jurisdictions in the project, those quadrants will get smaller and smaller. Now, what's interesting about the quadrants is every quadrant has a central bank at its core with the commercial banks around the perimeter. 
The central bank onboards commercial banks and sets rules around custody and transactions for their domestic commercial banks. The central banks, if you look at the core, are all interconnected to each other. The third layer are the white arrows between those institutions. The white arrows are, you can think of them as the pipes through which the CBDC is transacted. Now, what's interesting about the white arrows is, first of all, they cover all the regions. So once a CBDC is issued, it can, it can circulate outside of its domestic context. So for example, uh, an, an ECNY that was issued in mainland China can circulate outside of in mainland China to anybody on the platform. The central banks in the middle form the nucleus of the platform and run something called the consensus protocol. So they're the ones that are actually um, driving the transactions on the platform. That does not mean that they see all the transactions, but it does mean that they play a critical component to the operational and infrastructure of the platform. And around the perimeter, you can see that the commercial banks in a way transact in a peer-to-peer -peer way, but they do so with the sponsorship of their central bank by, by operating the nucleus of the platform. The platform supported three transaction types. The first one is domestic issuance and redemption of CBDC. The second one is cross-border payments using CBDC. And the third one is cross-border foreign exchange transactions using atomic an instant payment versus payment. Atomic meaning that either both side of the transactions settle or no side of the transaction settles at all. And this eliminates settlement risk and herstat risk from these often long and tedious cross-border payment, um, cross payments. So what did we actually do in Enbridge? We took a, a, a hard look at regional trade between the four jurisdictions because regional trade was the primary driver for a lot of the, the cross-border transactions in the region. And we focused on that to run a pilot using real value cross-border payments. To do so, each jurisdiction brought five critical commercial banks to participate in a pilot that lasted six weeks long. And in the course of that pilot, these six banks transacted using real central bank digital currency to settle real transactions. And what you can see here is just in the course of six weeks, we were able to actually exercise 41 unique cross-border peer-to-peer linkages. And I want you to kind of extend your imagination and say, well, if the pilot lasted more than six weeks, if it lasted 12 weeks or 24 weeks, what would this graph start to look like? And I would, I would propose that we would see a fully connected graph where every commercial bank would transact seamlessly, instantly, and atomically with every other commercial bank on this graph. So the, the opportunity to create a rich, diversified, resilient network of peer-to-peer cross-border payments is, is, is really attested to by this graph over here. I mean, a project that is different yet similar is a project called Mariana. And it's a project that's run by the Swiss Center and it is focusing on automated market makers for decentralized trading and settlement. So this is a project that is, is much more in its infancy. So it, we, we just kicked it off in the, in, the, in the recent months. So Project Mariana is an open, transparent, and composable technology, and it creates a liquidity pool using three different currency types, the Swiss franc, the euro, and the Singapore dollar.
And what it does is it puts all of these currencies into something called a liquidity pool. And the three components that it provides is bridges, CBDC tokens, and a decentralized trading platform for settlement of wholesale CBDC. So we're connecting three different currency types through this supra-regional FX hub. How do we do that? Well, we have something called a bond curve on the left and a liquidity pool on the right. So the bond curve provides a deterministic pricing strategy. And an example is this X times Y equals 100. And we're simplifying it to two currency types just for, for purpose of explanation. And what happens is as, and on the, on, the, on the other side, in the liquidity pool, you have this kind of smart contract that holds the liquidity and makes sure that price movements stay along that curve. So let's explain quickly what's, what's going on here. If Swiss francs were taken out of the liquidity pool, the quantity of euros, of, of euro CBDC would, would go up. So the, the, the deterministic pricing along that price possibility frontier would go up and the ratio would be preserved. And what that would do is it would encourage liquidity providers to put in more euros into the liquidity pool to balance out the pool to maintain that constant of X times Y equals 100. Likewise, to push it down the possibility frontier, liquidity holders of Swiss francs would put Swiss francs into the pool for the extraction of euros. So what happens is you have this balancing mechanism along that bond curve um, pricing where it constantly balances out the pricing of the liquidity pool itself. Now it's distributed in nature because essentially this thing can operate itself. The liquidity pool and the smart contract and the balancing mechanics aren't someone, some an institution holding a peg or keeping the balance. These are all automated smart contracts that can be deployed in a purely distributed way. And of course, in our context, that doesn't mean public permissionless. It would mean private permissioned but it would still likely be distributed amongst the currency providers that are maintaining this pool and maybe even the financial institutions themselves. So this is an example um, of maybe a project that is more future facing than Enbridge. Um, Enbridge is very practical and maybe looking at a time horizon of three to five years. This might be looking at a time horizon of five years plus. Um, and in a way, these, these two projects could also be complementary. This is an FX formation uh, mechanism, whereas Enbridge is more of a payment and, and, um, and PVP, atomic PVP type, type uh, cross-border payment instrument. So I think that these are two examples of practical projects of how we're trying to take cutting edge technology, bring that cutting edge technology into the world of central banking, and by doing so, fostering inclusive innovation um, for, for the global financial market infrastructure. Now, some of these projects are looking, at the, uh, are looking to fix the current inefficiency with correspondent uh, banking network-based payment that is done through wire transfer. Um, you gave the example of the average project, and you mentioned uh, they are practical in reality. They can be implemented in the next five years. And how would that roadmap look like? And this will have to be a global rollout, although 
uh, in the pilot and proof of concepts, only four central banks were introduced or were involved. Yeah, I, I think that five years is probably is is, is probably a very um, conservative estimate. I think we we might see uh, versions of this coming into production. Uh, even within the next 12 to 24 months. I wouldn't think about it as a global rollout. I think that the likelihood is of is what we'll see are regional um, regional platforms that support activity in specific regions. So I don't think we're going to see one platform to rule them all. I don't think that's really practical, mostly in terms of governance. The likelihood is that we'll start seeing regional platforms and then we'll start working on interoperability between these um, regional platforms. So the, the, the idea of connecting uh, an economy's RTGS system or faster payment system directly into a cross-border payment system, it, it, it will increase the efficiency of these systems by, by, by a large, by a large, uh, a large uh, value. And then the last thing that I think is outside of the technical and the governance is, is the legal side of things. And we're putting a lot of work into figuring out what common legal practices can you have to ensure that that common settlement layer is really common, not from a technical capacity, but from a legal certainty around the nature of these transactions. And that's something that, you know, for lack of a better word, is very patchwork, right? Different economies and different jurisdictions are farther along than others. Um, you know, for example, some in some countries, the central bank has the authority to issue a CBDC. In other economies, it doesn't, and it needs to go to the government and to legislation. And just that will pr produce an asymmetry between the participants. So we're likely going to see something that is slightly uh, autonomous. Certain jurisdictions will run ahead. Other jurisdictions will follow. Now, in the discussion on the future of money or future of the payment, um, a, a, a few candidates for money uh, today, which is being used, right? Cryptocurrency is one. Uh, there are a number of jurisdictions, uh, El Salvador and the Central Republic of Africa, are already using Bitcoin as legal tender. So that, there's actually actual use case for cryptocurrency as money. Uh, then there's talk of stablecoin being used as well. Um, now, from BIS, BIS seems to prefer uh, CBDCs and uh, tokenized uh, deposits. Um, how would that square with uh, uh, different regions or, or different countries' choice of their preferred form of currencies? I think the best way to think about it is where does each of these currency types, where does each kind of type of money borrow their 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 um, their integrity from, and I think that if you look at it carefully, you realize that at the base of all of this sits the trust in our central banking institutions and the trust in our governments. And without that, you really lose the the, the base layer of everything we're building on. I mean, even Bitcoin is still today priced in dollars, right? And if you look at our analysis that we provide of you know the influx into crypto, a lot of it is based on you know speculative speculative investing. It's it's less of a payment and payment instrument in a unit of account. M maybe it's a maybe it's a store of value in, in a speculative store of value at best. So we think of the role of the central bank and the role of the sovereign state as the base of the tree. Now I, when we, we have to be careful about public and private cooperation, right? It's something that we want to foster. I don't 
I, I, I don't think it's correct to look at these two things as competing forces, but where there are market failures, it's incumbent upon the public institutions to step in and provide the certainty that they can. So the picture that I would like to paint is central bank digital currencies can be the roots of these trees. And on these, on these roots of these trees, many, many things can flourish. Today, many currencies are not used for international settlement because of the issue of uh, currency uh, settlement risk. Now, potentially, if the current cross-border and uh, currency uh, exchange system can be replaced by Enbridge or, or tokenized assets, uh, what kind of uh, what extent of of savings and as well as uh, uh, a turnaround time to effect uh, cross-border payments? I think that from a technology perspective, we have we we have been able to show that in a very practical way you can connect um, financial institutions across borders in a way that's safe and secure that can functionally settle payments atomically and instantly. Now, the implications of that are massive, right? You have this peer-to-peer -peer connectivity, you have transactions that are settled instantly. With that in mind though, it's not as easy. It's it's not as easy as, as as it seems. So you know when you think about the the reality of the why correspondent banking is the way it is. Well, because a lot of it is relationship based, and we have different settlement, uh, different settlement, um, different settlement infrastructures for different settlement requirements that are based on different legal requirements. All of these things matter a lot. And then last but not least, well, the role of cross currencies in providing liquidity and price formation are mm -hmm. are are going to be incredibly um hard to 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 challenge to some extent right so we see the desire for domestic currencies to play a bigger role in international settlement but at the end of the day if it's cheaper or there's more liquidity to go through a cross currency or if a commercial bank doesn't want to move its liabilities to central bank money, but wants to keep them as commercial bank money within its corporate treasury ecosystem, for example, those are powerful market forces. You don't just need to be a little bit better to change behavior. You need to be 10 times better. And that's that's only when the user says, oh, I'm going to stop doing things the way I've done it until now and adopt something new. So the challenge is enormous, right? It's not just enough for us to say, hey, this works in a little lab environment and we can connect a few banks and run transactions and we can prove that it can work. It's the, the platforms like this really need to be 10x more cheaper, better, faster, have better liquidity, have better pricing formation, have better data analysis, create better relationships in order really to shift the market in that direction. Now, uh, the technology can be proven to work as it has or it, it has in, in many cases, in many of the projects. The next challenge in terms of rolling out will be uh, building of the infrastructure. And here, BIS is advocating a open uh, approach, open technology uh, to prevent the creation of um, a war garden, so to speak, not one you know, parties dominating, excluding uh, the participation of others. Um, how do you see that uh, uh, being played out? When we think about um, open and inclusive innovation, we're trying to create transparent mechanisms through which people can 
see the work that we're doing, have visibility, be able to learn from it and be able to contribute back into it, right? And we have to acknowledge that the, the, the autonomy and the sovereignty that each one of our, um, e each country and each one of our central banks uh, needs to have in order to operate um, and, and execute on their mandate. It, 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 it's really that simple. Now, here we've gathered mainly commercial banks. Uh, how should they prepare today? I know uh, many commercial banks are, in reality, in practicality, are not involved in many of these pilots. Uh, how should the wider industry prepare? And I think the first thing is, 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 is learning, right? The first thing is really being plugged into the source and trying to anticipate where the industry is going. We, we, we make a, a tremendous amount of effort of, of cooperation and coordination. This is not something that we're doing alone by, by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, I would argue that most of the knowledge and most of the know-how is in the private sector. So uh, we need to rely very much on the private sector for guidance and to understand what services we can provide, how we can promote the innovation, um, and what we can learn from the private sector, whether that's the banks or whether that's crypto, or whether that's, um, you know, the corp corporate treasurers and financial service providers and payment service providers that ultimately know uh, how to service clients, how to provide value to their business. Uh, this collaboration is hugely, hugely important. You know, I'll end with this. Technology is very much a participatory subject, right? You can't become, to make an analogy, it doesn't matter how many piano concerts you go to, you will never become a pianist by sitting on the sidelines. You can sit and look at the Enbridge or look at all these projects and you can appreciate them, but you won't really be able to engage or become part of it yourself without actually exercising. So, so that engagement is, is incredibly important. I, I thank you for, for raising that. Um, I, I would look forward to engaging as much as possible. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.